0: Good evening everyone. Welcome to the Forum. Thanks for coming along tonight. My name is Beth Hannan and I'm the Associate Director of the Forum. If you've never been to one of our events before, we are a non-profit organisation. We put on events like this once a week, all throughout the year, um, where we get philosophers and other really interesting people uh, to talk about issues of current importance in politics, art, culture, um, anything that strikes us as being interesting. Um, We have uh, the ability to do this because kind people like yourself donate to us. You could be one of those kind people too. You can go to our website and you'll find a link to our Just Giving page. Um, And because of people like you, we're able to get these kinds of events happening. So please do consider uh, donating. Um, if you go to our website to donate, you'll also find a huge archive of our podcasts. We've been running for o- over 20 years now, and although not all of our events have been podcast, a huge number have. So there's a really rich archive there um, for you to dig into, and there's lots of essays as well from philosophers on all sorts of interesting I- um, issues there for you to read and mull over as well. Uh, a couple of housekeeping issues. Uh, This is being recorded for a podcast too so if you do ask a question, just bear in mind that your voice will be immortalised forevermore on the internet Um, and if you could turn off the volume on your phone that would be really appreciated. no need to turn off your phone completely. In fact, if you're into that sort of thing, you can tweet along with us. We have our very own bespoke hashtag, LSEFEP. So if you want to join the conversation there, feel free. Uh, well, that's more than enough for me. Uh, let me hand you over to the far more interesting panel we have tonight. And thank you again for coming. Good evening.
1: Tonight we're going to be discussing affirmative action. What is it? Who's it for? What's the relationship between affirmative action and social justice and why is this such a controversial topic? And I'm absolutely thrilled to introduce our wonderful panelists this evening. You might notice that there are three of us rather than four. Unfortunately, Professor Heidi Merzer uh, had to withdraw from the panel, but I'm sure that we're going to have plenty to talk about amongst ourselves. So, On my left is Professor Elizabeth Anderson, who is the Arthur F. Thurnau Professor and John Dewey, Distinguished University Professor of Philosophy and Women's Studies at the University of Michigan. And on my right, we have Dr. Omar Khan, who's the director of the leading think tank, The Runnymede Trust, which focuses on race equality, and he's also the governor at the University of East London. So thank you both so much for joining us, and welcome to the forum. So... The first question I'd like to ask of you both tonight is really what is affirmative action and who or what is it for? And Elizabeth, I'd start with you.
2: I'm going to be speaking mainly from the American context. Affirmative action began after the passage of the anti-discrimination laws in the 1960s, after the Civil Rights Movement, it was discovered that passing the laws changed nothing. Discrimination continued. Hence, people thinking about it said, look, it's not enough just to pass laws. You have to take affirmative action, positive steps to include the people who have been excluded, who are currently being excluded from the basic institutions of society in order to realize equal opportunity and a more just society. So affirmative action is any positive steps made to deliberately include those who would otherwise be excluded in mainstream institutions of society due to the way these institutions would otherwise be operating.
1: So what kind of policies are we talking about in this context?
2: There's a huge range of policies. Organizations, for instance, can study how implicit bias works and set up their hiring procedures or selection procedures at university uh, to avoid implicit bias, there's active recruitment of people from underrepresented groups into the institution. You send people out saying, hey, this is a good place to go to university or this is a good place to work. In the context of evaluating applications, one can consider what distinctive contributions people will make due to their background and personal knowledge, personal experience, what can they bring to enrich what the organization is able to do? What can they do to enable that organization to operate in a way that's more responsive to people from all works of life, to better realize democracy, and justice, all of these things are relevant, and they all begin from a recognition that institutions that are run by uniformly homogeneous and privileged groups generally lack the knowledge and disposition to behave justly. Hmm. Okay. Yeah.
3: yeah. No, I was going to say there's been a recent example of that, of course, here, which is the Windrush case, which I would argue one of the reasons it happened is because there was insufficient. You know, communication uh, of those needs and preferences to policymakers. Decision makers are quite isolated and segregated from a lot of these communities. I mean, we talk about segregation, but if you look at the indices of segregation in Britain, you'll find that white British middle class people are the least likely to know people of other ethnic and class groupings compared to other groups. So I think there's an argument there in terms of distance from those who are affected by a policy, and it's one of the major reasons why policy screw-ups happen is when you have policymakers who are too far removed. So I think that's an argument even from good government as well as, well as just government. I mean, you've got to, you know, you're ineffectively just, you know, d- delivering as a government if you don't tackle where there's genuine need. I absolutely agree with what uh, Elizabeth has said. I mean, I think two, two or three things I wanted to say further, which is that it is affirmative action is to tackle group-based disadvantage, and I think the first, the second bit, the disadvantage, both bits are often forgotten and misunderstood. So the disadvantage bit is forgotten—that we are actually talking about giving people access to institutions that currently don't have them, and typically people who are. Unjustly, not able to access those institutions. And I think, you know, if you're going to object to affirmative action, you at least need to foreground how are you going to tackle the disadvantaged element. I think the group-based element is also controversial. People tend to think that, you know, there's something wrong with groupness or that... Uh, I think just as common is how does the uh, particular individual who benefits benefit the whole group? And I think we do have to tell a story as to why it is the case that it's not merely the individual beneficiary of the policy, but rather the entire group and indeed all of us as society that benefit. So I think we need to articulate more clearly those, those benefits. So the benefits accrue, of course, to the individual who gets an advantaged chance, because it's not a guarantee, of course, in the United States or anywhere else, an advantaged chance of getting a job. Um, but it also benefits everyone in that group. And I think some of the reasons uh, that I I sort of suggested with that Windrush case, by ensuring that we tackle uh, a a harm that affects everyone in the group, we're more likely to benefit everyone in that group. And furthermore, as I suggested, it benefits everyone in society by ensuring that our democratic institutions are more responsive uh, to injustice. And if we want to live in a more just society, that's a good reason to do so. Uh, good reason to pursue pr- affirmative action. Uh, the f- final point I wanted to make is, uh, and it's a point I struggle to make, uh, partly because I haven't lost my American accent despite living here 20 years, is uh, I think there's a lot of confusion about affirmative action when I speak about it to UK audiences. Um, and I think Elizabeth has, I think, punctured nicely one of the major confusions, which is British and European audiences tend to think that affirmative action in the United States uh, is some sort of compensation for slavery or Jim Crow, whereas, in fact, affirmative action is about current unequal opportunities and about dismantling those current injustices. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do something in terms of compensation, but both the legal Supreme Court arguments and the arguments that activists and scholars make in the U.S. are much more foregrounded in terms of equal opportunities and should be straightforwardly clear that, you know, what we're trying to tackle here is, is racism and its, its ongoing effects today, not, not compensating for a past wrong.
1: Fantastic. And I know that you did your PhD on um, affirmative action or what you talk about as preferential policies in India. So could you give us some examples from the Indian case of these kinds of policies?
3: Yeah, so India has a more advanced sort of array of policies. And I think it's quite interesting to think about the democratic benefits that that Elizabeth talks about. So in India, uh, for example, 15% of seats in the National Parliament are reserved for Dalits, or ex-untouchables, and that was argued for from the Constituent Assembly. Uh, 7.5% additionally are reserved for what are called the uh, Scheduled Tribes. uh, And then uh, you have, furthermore, you have reservations, which are more or less quotas in public sector employment. Uh, and that's not a small benefit, actually, because <coughs> Indian National Railways is probably the second biggest employer in the world after the Chinese Army. It's about 1.6 million people work for Indian National Railways. And in addition to the 22.5% that are reserved for Dalits and and scheduled tribes for public sector employment, you also have another 27.5% reserved for other backward classes. So it's quite a complex... uh, And in addition to those, you have uh, the higher education benefits as well. So there's access to higher education, to public sector employment, but also to representation. And more recently, in panchayats, which is local democracy, a third of panchayat seats are reserved for women. And I think that case, there's some empirical evidence that that has had huge benefits uh, in terms of the expenditure of public sector uh, 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 local government. So bef- after but the one-third reservation for women was advanced, there, there was an increase in expenditure on public health and education. And the argument was that whereas men tend to see um, local public sector uh, Uh, appointments as sinners and try to benefit personally from it, women are looking to spend it more on. And there is evidence around this internationally, too, that for every dollar you give to a mother, they're more likely to spend it on their child and on public health. And of course, those benefits don't just accrue to their own child. If you improve the quality of sanitation or public education in the local area, that benefits all of us. So I think that's another very neat and uh, strongly evidenced example of how a policy that its opponents say is only about benefiting a few women, actually has very wide uh, systemic effects. And also there's some evidence that the women who benefited have uh, increased their voice vis-a-vis their husbands. So also empowering women uh, as well.
1: Great. And would you mind saying a little bit more about affirmative action in the British case? So the the, the thing that we normally hear is that positive action is permitted, but positive discrimination isn't. So what kinds of yeah. actions are permitted in the British case? Yeah, it's
3: quite, it is quite narrow. I think it's true that speaking here today, uh, especially as the director of a race equality organisation that works with policymakers, I have to recognise that the legal grounds in terms of permissibility of affirmative action are quite constrained <coughs> in the UK. Of course, we did apply quotas in the case of Northern Ireland, to Catholic uh, police officers. So after uh, you know, the Good Friday Agreement, the police service of Northern Ireland had a very few Catholic uh, police officers. So in that case, we did apply quotas. So it's not exactly true that there's no uh, experience of it. And that did actually have an effect in terms of the Catholic population's uh, confidence in, in trust in the police service in Northern Ireland in terms of the fairness of delivering uh, justice. Uh, Most of the cases in the UK, uh, the the employment provisions are very narrow, so tie-breaking scenario. And I think employers, my reading of that, are very wary of applying that because they'd have to prove precisely that two candidates were exactly equally uh, qualified in every other way. And so we're only using race as a tie-breaker. I think what probably happens as a bit of dishonesty, which is that employers say that one candidate or the other was more qualified, because getting a case of tiebreak I-, I feel the tiebreaker provision is not a very good provision, is what I would probably like to say, because it's so difficult to prove.
2: Can I, can I just interject here? Because there's a lot of illusions about so-called meritocratic yeah. hiring and yeah. selection. In fact, from a sociological point of view, we know that a lot of this is completely bogus. (laughs) So there's a wonderful sociologist in the United States who took a look at how hiring practices at elite law firms and accounting firms and things like this. And basically, they don't even look at... There's a basic screening. You have to have a university degree from a pretty high-class university. But in the actual interview stage, they don't ask anything relevant to merit. It's kind of like... What sports do you like? And, like, what music do you like? They're actually looking for cultural affinity, which, as you might imagine, is highly correlated with race and gender. (laughs) And, in fact, it's impossible to have a purely meritocratic hiring system. For almost every job, there's far more qualified people uh, than there are openings, and consequently, something else has to be going on, okay? And often it's who do you know or how did you find out about this job, yeah, okay? Or, yeah. and, and so a lot of what affirmative action is doing is simply substituting for the fact that there are some people who don't have the networks because of their, their racial or ethnic identity or their caste or whatever. They don't have an inside track, and so affirmative action is a way a, a way of opening doors to people who otherwise wouldn't even find out about the opportunity or would just be shut out because of, right, oh, they don't look right for the job, where looking right just is being exactly like the same people who've always been hired for this position.
3: Yeah, I think there is this tendency to see in the you know, a candidate who looks like you in front of you, the younger version of yourself. Yeah. And uh, so if someone looks and sounds and has the same background as you, you might think they're, you know, similar to you in the sort of qualities you think this job is needed, whereas actually another candidate who looks nothing like you, maybe a Muslim woman wearing a headscarf, who actually is more like you, but you discount that because of those sorts of biases. So I think, you know, I, I, I absolutely endorse your view. I just, just to pick up the second way that you can use it, I I think the UK... Uh, has, I'm surprised it hasn't been pushed further with some cases to test how far you could push positive action. So I agree with it. I think the tie-breaking provision is not where the action is. I think we should sort of just discount that. I mean, there are some other schemes like training schemes. So the BBC had a training scheme uh, to have four people uh, you know, go through it every year. The Sun, of course, had a headline page that said, BBC is anti-white, And I did point out that 19 out of the 20 people on their governing board are white. So, you know, (laughs) does it require 20 out of 20 to demonstrate that BBC is not anti-white? Presumably, that's what it requires. But I think that is actually the barrier. It's the public controversy over it. And, uh, you know, the, I'm just going to read out what the, you know, what is allowed, which is measures which are targeted at a protected group are permitted if they are proportionate means of the aim of enabling or encouraging persons to overcome or minimize disadvantage. Now, you know, proportionate, all of those terms are interpretable, and I think all of those terms could be challenged if a brave uh, service delivery organization in particular, because it's particularly talking about the provision of goods and services, so a public sector, uh, you know, uh, a local authority, or even in employment. I think more could be done um, to, to, to push it. I'm surprised also, for example, that police services haven't tried it. I did put it to um, to the former chair of the Commission for Racial Equality, that you might even view race as a genuine occupational requirement and not even affirmative action, actually, that to police effectively in an area that's 70 percent black and minority ethnic, where you're stopping and searching half the people who are black. You, being black is actually part of being able to deliver the job well. I mean, you can't, you actually can't, deliver uh, in the current criminal justice system, in my view, in Britain, without more black police officers. Um, But that would be, I think, more controversial uh, still. But, you know, it'd be interesting if a police force uh, tested that.
1: Well, thank you both for that fantastic opener. I'd like to bring you guys in now. Does anybody have a question at this point on this section? What is affirmative action? Who or what is it for... Two three. Yeah. Okay. There's a wondering mic. Yeah.
4: Yeah. I mean, who gets to decide who like the disadvantages groups are? I mean, I'm a sort of white, heterosexual, cisgendered, middle class male, right? So it's obvious. I can take it for granted that. Um, I'm a sort of highly privileged person you know the, the world is laid out before my feet and, and I've had all exactly the same life experiences as every other white heterosexual cisgendered middle class male so of course I may not have had some disadvantages in my own life right I mean uh, this is what I find amusing it's like who, who gets to decide who the disadvantaged people are you, ca- you kind of defining people based on their sort of skin color or their gender which is actually i mean there's huge variability for any given sort of say if you take a white male there could be like massive variability in terms of what advantages or disadvantages they may have had in their life and they may be far greatly disadvantaged com- compared to some sort of black guy you know that they sort of um, that lives in the house next door or whatever uh, and also, the, this whole concept of BAME is a completely, f- deeply flawed concept because what it, it creates artificial a false equivalence between different ethnic groups, some of whom are actually doing better now in Britain than the white people. So, for example, East Asians and um, I believe Indians as well are doing sort of um, quite well. And uh, black people from so African people are doing far better now than Afro-Caribbean people. So it, <clears throat> this kind of false equivalence is created um, between these groups and they're kind of set up in opposition to white people which to me is completely you know, is, is just a really sort of bad way of analysing the situation.
1: Um, okay, so thank
4: I, you. So the whole class thing has been ignored as well. What about working cl- class? Like the modern left seems to have deserted the working classes. So... Mm-hmm. Sorry, that was a bit of a long question. Thank you. Question. No, that's so, fantastic.
1: No. I'm going to take a <laughs> question uh, from the back as well before we go back to our panellists for an answer. The gentleman right at the back.
5: I was going to make a rather similar point because,
4: I mean, <laughs> I think it's like egalitarian. But, I, I, but I'm concerned with uh, your competition between the sort of different groups, uh, you know, comparative yeah. victimhood.
5: I was... For,
4: worked for a long time with uh, sort of underprivileged working-class males. And I have a feeling that sort of over time, social mobility, as it affects this group, has been sort of much reduced. This may or may not be due to sort of affirmative action affecting other groups. But to to what extent do you think this is a problem, sort of uh, competition between uh, the various deserving groups?
1: Thank you very much. Um, If I may, I'll go to Omar first, because I know that you have something to say about the idea of uh, black and minority ethnic and and, um, affirmative action.
3: Sure, yeah. I mean, I think it is a challenge in terms of uh, how you would apply it in Britain. So I I do agree that there's... I wouldn't say it's a false equivalence. I mean, the, the, the... it's trying to capture something, and there is still uh, racial disadvantage. So even the groups you talk about, so East Asians or Black African or Indians, all underperform in terms of they're less likely to get a first at university. So they do better at GCSE, it's true, but then they're less likely to get a first or a two-one. So there's a, a, a degree gap, and then they're less likely to uh, have higher wages and have more likely to be unemployed uh 36 months after graduation. So despite having higher qualifications at school, they end up having worse outcomes in the labor market. And the most plausible explanation is that there's discrimination in the labor market. And the studies that have tried to show this, so you have to send in twice as many CVs if you have an Asian or African-sounding surname, have used Chinese and Nigerian surnames as well as sort of, uh, you know, West Asian or, or Indian surnames. And the, the penalty in the labor market still persists. So I think on evidence, in terms of who gets to decide, I agree. I don't think it should be who gets to decide. I think it should be based on the evidence of which groups are disadvantaged. And that should be uh, how you apply the policy. I absolutely don't think that it should be just some sort of arbitrary decision that we apply the policy randomly to whatever groups exist in society. I said from the outset, it's a group-based disadvantage. So any group that has a disadvantage is a, is, a, is a plausible target. And I would include class. I don't have any objection to class-based affirmative action. I mean, I don't understand why that's in competition. I also don't understand how – we've written multiple reports on class disadvantage, so I always find it strange when I'm accused of ignoring class. I feel like, you know, the people who are most likely to say that we're ignoring class are those who themselves propose no policies to deal with class disadvantage either. When I'm in debates about these things, they're no more likely to propose anti-poverty strategies than they are to defend uh, affirmative action. But my – my view on this is that there there shouldn't <coughs> be necessi- there will be competition and there will be, uh, you know, the, the, my final view on this sorry, is that there is comp- there will be competition in the allocation of these jobs and resources, but also that affirmative action is not a cure all. It's not trying to solve all of society's injustices, and there are other policies, of course, that we should also uh, 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 defend and advance further, including anti-poverty strategies. So I I don't see uh, I see that that would be the way to take the sting out of the competition, which is to 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 adv- you know advance policies across a range of social injustice that we've got. This discussion is about specific disadvantage that people experience in virtue of their ethnic or racial background, and there's no shortage of evidence that that persists in Britain today. So I think that's the reason why we should con- at least consider uh, advancing it further here.
2: Elizabeth, yeah. So th- one of the things I want to stress is that affirmative action isn't just about offering benefits to the particular people who get those jobs. It's mostly about improving how organizations work so that they can work more justly and more democratically. And the key thing to understand is that an organization composed of people who are... Relatively homogeneous, maybe with only token members of systematically disadvantaged uh, groups, is not going to be able, it's not going to have the knowledge mm-hmm. to bring about justice because it's largely people, it's composed of people who are largely ignorant of what's affecting other communities that they don't belong to. And it's also going to lack the disposition to behave justly because, hey, we have it good <laughs> and, and those organizations tend to be unaccountable to the groups yeah. who are being affected by those decisions. So the critical thing here is that we don't live in an already just society. We don't live in a perfect meritocracy. Systematic injustice exists. It's embedded in the way organizations work and the only way to overcome that is to integrate those institutions. And yes, that means class as well. No. Class is really a profound source of disadvantage, but we also have to recognize that how class works, works differently depending on one's race and one's gender. So it's a commonplace in American discourse to imagine that say African-American students, black students admitted to elite schools must all have parents who are doctors and lawyers or whatever. And so the fantasy is these are all hyper-class privileged people who never suffered from discrimination. Well, number one, empirically, that's just false. In, in, In fact, about half of the black students at highly selective schools grew up in a neighborhood with gunshots, Okay, there, there's guns ringing out, and they got a duck. Okay, and they they're they're coming from vast even even if their parents have high incomes. In fact, the, their neighborhoods are vastly less advantaged than the neighborhoods of their counter, white counterparts. But even leaving that aside, the point is that an institution, an organization that's composed of privileged people, they have no idea what's going on in the rest of the world. Okay, How do you bring that knowledge in? By bringing in the people who have the relevant experiences and knowledge. And that doesn't mean that those people all have the same experiences. It's not that all whites think alike and all blacks think alike and all Asians think alike. Rather, there's immense varieties there, but the varieties... Among, among, say, white people, the varieties of knowledge and personal experience and so forth is different than the varieties of knowledge and circumstance and personal experience of other groups. You need all that, yeah. all that knowledge to be incorporated to make organizations effective and responsive to people from all walks of life.
3: There's also evidence from the U.S. that African-American <coughs> beneficiaries of medical school are more likely to practice in poor areas. And so, again, improve the public health and, and expenditure, improve, you know, th- that we're not spending money on kind of emergency care that should be, you know, spent more preventatively. And similarly in India, that Dalit beneficiaries in terms of medical school are more likely to practice in those areas. So, again, I think. <laughs> not only do they have that knowledge they they use their knowledge i think often more to benefit um yeah to benefit those groups
1: well i think that leads us on nicely to our next question which i'll put to you first of all omar and that is why is this such a controversial yeah, topic
3: yeah. well i have already suggested uh, part of it is the kind of <laughs> group-based nature of 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 the uh of the policy, I think people seem to think somehow that there's something wrong about benefiting people in virtue of the group they belong to. I do think there are challenges where I think in the UK it is more difficult to talk about BAME BME groups than it is in the US when you're talking about African Americans who have a more shared history. But even in the US, and maybe Elizabeth will talk about this, you know, there have been calls that uh, m- migrants from Africa should not be beneficiaries because they haven't experienced the same kind of racial injustice that those born in the United States do in terms of the long history of enslavement and Jim Crow. So, yes, there is a challenge, I think, around defining the group. Um, And in that sense, uh, gender is easier, but even with gender, obviously, uh, there will be kind of controversial areas of who should or shouldn't uh, get the benefit. Uh, I think also a misunderstanding that Elizabeth, I think, has done a very good job of puncturing, which is that it's only about this particular individual. Um, it is about the wider society, about the kinds of organizations, the kinds of democracy we have, and I think that argument hasn't been foregrounded enough. The argument also that empirically it does benefit the whole group, not just the individual member. I think one way to think about the way it benefits the whole group, too, is um, the way that our personal identity and self-respect is tied to those around us, and so it's quite hard for individuals, I think, to sort of be so heroic and their individualism that, that you know, they can be satisfied um, that they're living a good life even if everybody else but their disadvantaged group uh, doesn't agree. So if you're an African-American or a Dalit and your, your group thinks that what your life is like is valuable but nobody else in society does, you don't really have the social basis of sort of self-respect. It's very hard. Other people don't affirm that your life is worth living. Um, or that your life is as valuable. And so having those people in public institutions is, I think, also important because you see that it's not just your group, which is otherwise despised and disadvantaged in society, that values, you know, your life and, and, and the things that you want to pursue in your life. But by being by seeing people like that in public institutions, you're kind of, the, the state is affirming that these, these individuals do indeed have equal citizenship. It's not just a sort of... Uh, it's not just a, a, a value that we affirm kind of uh, abstractly, but one that is is real. So I think those sorts of benefits that apply to the group. Um, and I think, finally, the controversy is the, the competition. I do think it's, it is a genuine issue. I think you have to think hard about how you apply the policy to ensure that, uh, in my view, all those groups that are most disadvantaged benefit from it. And also tie it to a wider program of combating other forms of social inequality and injustice. I think it would be a mistake to try to oversell the policy too. I think you know I don't I'm not standing here and saying affirmative action will by itself solve uh, you know inequality and social injustice you know in 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 Britain or anywhere else. But I think it can contribute towards it along with a platform of other measures. And sometimes I think people don't hear the along with. So I think. Yeah, there's a variety of reasons why it's been controversial and will remain so. I think it is worth pointing out that, yeah, in Britain it's very unpopular. It's been polled, and as few as 8% of the population think it's a good idea, uh, and about only about a third of minorities. So obviously uh, it's not a, an idea that has much uh, public support, but I suppose in the U.S. too it's, uh, it has declining public support too because uh, of, the public, of the political attack on it.
2: I'd like to actually speak to that issue of declining support. Yeah. There's a big structural economic issue I want to get to, but I, I just want to point out something that's very, very interesting phenomenon in the US context. If you actually ask the organizations practicing affirmative action, they're totally gung-ho for it. And the, pe- and the people are as well, because the experience of working together, with more diverse groups is, in fact, enriching. And people recognize that inside the organization. It's mostly people outside who don't have the relevant experiences who find affirmative action threatening. But uh, my institution, University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, was the focus of the leading Supreme Court case on affirmative action And it was challenged as unconstitutional under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Uh, And when affirmative action at University of Michigan was challenged, we got amicus briefs. These are briefs by third parties submitted to the Supreme Court from the United States Army saying we need affirmative action (laughs) from Innumerable major corporations, there were hundreds of amicus briefs from the organizations in question because they see that it works and that people can flourish in diverse organizations. So that's one thing. Once you get experience with it, it's a lot better. But now let's take a look at the larger structural issue of political economy. And I want to contrast, think about the Windrush case today, why were they here, why did they come over anyways? By invitation, because they were seen as rebuilding Britain and the British economy in a period of economic growth. You need more people, you know, and promote that economic growth. In a context of economic growth where everyone is sharing in that growth, Diversity is seen as a positive good because you need people, (laughs) right? And Europe is facing this whole problem today with uh, aging population, declining birth rates. Europe could really use people. And they're not, you know, and where are they going to come from elsewhere? Okay? The average immigrant to Italy has a higher GDP per person, that is, they're producing, contributing more to the economy than the average Italian. Think about that. But the problem and why immigrants are seen as a problem now when they weren't in the three decades of post-World War II economic growth when they were warmly welcomed by the millions to be brought back into Europe to rebuild society, the difference today is that we're living in an era of austerity and economic growth that is profoundly not shared, okay? It's all the benefits are going to the top couple percent and everyone else is seeing stagnation, austerity. They don't, they're not experiencing the benefits and under those contexts, <coughs> with rising inequality, politics gets nasty. And it's all about fighting over slices of the pie, which groups get which slices, rather than about growing the pie and shared growth. So the larger context here is that we're in a different economic environment. Why? Well, it happens that I'm going to be speaking again on Monday on this very issue, giving the Brian Berry lecture the great reversal in which I will be talking about that issue, but it's largely because in the past 30 years or so, 30 or 40 years, the rich countries of the world have been deliberately adopting policies that radically favor the people at the top, the top few percent, and in particular capital owners, at the expense of workers. That's the bottom line, and that's why we're in a situation where there's so much discord over racial inclusion, if we had an economy of shared growth and people could recognize the objective reality that bringing in people from diverse places actually creates a more dynamic and prosperous society, then they'd be welcome, as indeed they were welcome in the post-war era.
3: I should have, because I'm now realizing my my point. Uh, The survey I cited the question was misleading in some ways. I mean, it asked uh, people's attitudes on positive discrimination. And again, it's if it was framed in the ways that we've just been talking about, I'm kind of, uh, you know, re- kind of reversing a bit. I-, I think one of the reasons why the answer to that question is so negative is because the benefits of affirmative action or positive action or preferential policies, or even if you want to call it positive discrimination, haven't been well defined and defended. I think the f- the other thing is, in terms of the controversy, the, the, the policies you've described means that the most advantaged people are relatively insulated from any application of affirmative action. I do think this is part of the controversy, that <coughs> sort of the rich, very rich, are completely insulated. They have so many multiple forms of advantage that, you know, taking away a little bit at their racial advantage is not really going to dislodge them from their elite positions. And so I do think that's one of the reasons why the controversy... Uh, Persists is because you have competition then between people who 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 are all doing badly, and that's why I think it's even more important that we advance uh, affirmative action as part of a wider program of policies.
1: We've talked primarily about affirmative action in relation to um, race and ethnicity. Um, Do either of you want to say anything about the controversies around um, affirmative action? in relation to gender, sex, and sexuality, for instance. So all-female shortlists, for example, why are are these um, so controversial? If we do have as a goal that things like um, political institutions should be more representative and should look a bit more like the society that they're representing, why is it that things like all-female shortlists generate such a lot of pushback?
2: Well, I think in political context, it's because women aren't seen as leaders. <laughs> so, but that's precisely why women need to be included in democratic institutions. Let's face it, who, who seeks office? I mean, there are some people who seek office because they want to do things, or there are other people who seek office because they want to be somebody. Um, and Women are socialized to be modest and not try to be somebody. But it's precisely because of that that you're more likely to actually get some dedicated public servants <laughs> rather than a bunch of narcissists if you have more uh, gender inclusion.
3: Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> as the narcissist at the table...
5: Uh,
3: <laughs> um, uh, you're right. I think, as I said, in the Indian case, that's proved, I think, quite decisively that the public expenditure was more social when you had more women at the local level than you had more men. So obviously... Uh, it, it's not just a hypothesis, it's kind of proven true. Uh, I, I mean, I'm, I still remain somewhat surprised it's controversial and that the only countries, if you look at all the countries, you know, you look at the list that Pippinoris keeps of where the most women are in parliaments, every single one of them has some form of, if not all women short list, what they call a zipper system where you have to have, you know, in list systems it's easier to to achieve. Uh, you know, without those policies, it doesn't seem like uh, men will allow women to have an equal shot at becoming a leader. But when you have those policies, uh, they do. I mean, one of the interesting conversations, um, yeah, I had was with a Norwegian um, uh, businessmen after the application of quotas in Norway. So Norway ap- applied um, quotas for all their boards that 50% of women... Uh, sorry, 50% of board members had to be women. And there were challenges of it. But actually, the, they, like, like you're saying, they were all very positive about it in the Norway uh, you know, Chamber of Commerce or whatever it was called because it actually improved their sellability globally. They felt it improved their efficiency. And, in fact, he was saying to me, actually, if it was applied to race, they would be quite happy, too, because they could better sell Norwegian products to China and Nigeria than just having, you know, 12 uh, white Norwegians trying to sell their products. And, I mean, I think there are kind of pragmatic reasons like that, that you are more able to sell. I mean, Stonewall um, sort of gay rights charity has found that IBM had a um, a sort of uh, an LGBT sales team, and they were actually more successful in finding new sales. So I think there are also commercial reasons why a lot of companies uh, advance them. Those, of course, aren't social justice reasons, but I just thought I'd flag them because they have motivated um, firms uh, to, to implement them. And I think the final point that Elizabeth raised, which is I think a really important one both for gender and race, and again points to the wider benefits than the mere individual beneficiary, is it breaks down stereotypes about what people can and can't do. You know, we don't need more black footballers in Britain to break down stereotypes of what black people can do. But we do need more black cabinet ministers and more black high court judges. And we do need more women in positions of leadership. We don't need more women starting businesses in sort of cosmetics, but we do need more women starting businesses in finance. So if you start seeing that sort of Representation. I think it not, is, isn't just beneficial for the individual entrepreneur or the individual high court judge, but it changes both, you know, it changes perceptions in society about what black people, what women, what minorities can do.
1: Okay, fantastic. So does anybody want to come in at this point on the question of why affirmative action is so controversial? And I see three <laughs> questions here in the middle. Shall we start here with Astrid? <laughs> there.
6: Um, well, thank you for some very good points. Um, I heard, I think it was uh, Elizabeth talking about sort of how affirmative action, sort of representation amongst um, decision makers and people at the top is important because we need varieties mm-hmm. of um, experience. But I also noticed that when you talk about it, have talked about it th- tonight, it's been mostly about sort of democratic institutions and boards and like yeah and so I study philosophy and that's a very wide area of the humanities right and one point that's often put forward by by people who are against affirmative action especially within philosophy is that you have areas such as logic where it doesn't really matter what background you have um I disagree but how do we in some sense because some people say like, oh yeah, it makes sense to have a representation or, mm. or a, a parliament that's representative of the population, but it doesn't make sense in mathematics or in philosophy <coughs> like, <coughs> because the areas that are sort of discovered in those very fields have not been allowed to be sort of areas which are relevant to people who are not represented, right? So how do we change that? Fantastic, thank you. And next question here.
7: Thank you so much. Um, I guess affirmative just, affirmative um, action is controversial because justice is hard, right? It requires challenging people's beliefs. It requires mm-hmm. asking people who are basically decent and kind to consider that they might have unconscious biases. And it requires people who, although they may be in a category that's privileged, are not explaining to them... That th- even though they're not themselves privileged, that that affirmative action does good things. Mm -hmm. And you've been wonderfully articulate about how we justify that. But I wonder if you think there are bad sort of ways to approach a public justification for affirmative action. Um, So how do we basically create more buy-in in uh, in the wider society when people have difficulties of grappling with sort of, seeing their own identity as part of a larger group identity, they may or may not be privileged. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, great. Um, So I guess um,
8: I'm specifically interested in the ways in which affirmative action isn't controversial compared to what I would see as measures to extend the benefits of affirmative action. Um, And so I, I come at this primarily from the perspective of a student I I graduated last year, but the, the wound is still fresh. Um, and, uh, I, I, my, my, my family's low income was considered, um, when I was admitted to Cambridge and I was really excited when I got in and then I got in and I realized as an institution, it was an incredibly hostile environment. Um, And I guess I'm I'm interested in those who are are willing to accept the logic of we need to create a more diverse community, um, we need to rectify uh, past injustice or past disadvantage, but who then aren't willing to actually change the relevant institutions structurally So for me, affirmative action seems to be not just about fairness in admittance, um, but fairness in the treatment of those who are admitted once they're there. Um, And I guess specifically, I'm wary of uh, commercial arguments for affirmative action. And you mentioned affirmative action in the military and in the police. And these are all institutions where I'm thinking, well, actually, like, you might argue that it's, it's better to have a more accountable police force or military or you know oxbridge or parliament but ultimately like structurally they are set against you and and once you enter into those institutions you kind of you do face a choice of kind of assimilation versus hell i mean that's a that's an exaggeration but like i I would be interested to know what you think about that presumably as people yourselves who have um had to make similar choices in your careers Thank you so much. Fantastic questions so far. I'll
1: just um, allow the panel to respond to those first of all. So we've got the question about how the issue to do with uh, diverse backgrounds relates to the kinds of subjects or contexts in which background doesn't obviously matter in the same kind of way. So, what would you say in that kind of context? We've got the question about how to generate support for affirmative action, given um, how justice is hard and it's asking, it's challenging people. And we've got the question about the need for deeper institutional change. Uh, so, fantastic. I, I wanted to put uh, the question, Astrid's first question about things like logic and maths. What, how does the how does the point about diverse backgrounds speak to that, to Elizabeth?
2: Right, so <clears throat> there are a couple of subjects like mathematics where it doesn't matter whether you're male or female or what have you, right? The theorem is the same. Um, however, there are still stereotypes that need to be broken. Um, about half of American math majors now are women, might be surprising. But there's actually been really assiduous work done to encourage girls in, in high school to study math so that they're able to major in math in college. And now that's a hot thing. And I think it's really important to to break stereotypes to open doors and so that young people can imagine themselves into these positions, which before just seemed, well, that's just a boy's thing or whatever. Um, And so that's a reason to practice affirmative action, um, to break stereotypes in order to open up opportunities to enable people to imagine the things they're interested in are things they can really do, or maybe to imagine that this could be interesting for them, that they're not ruled out because of their gender or their race. Um, It's also the case, though, that... If you look, say, within mathematics, uh, it's a very interesting phenomenon within academia that subfields within each discipline also tend to be gender differentiated, and so women are largely, when they when they're in math, they largely go into they disproportionately go into applied math, Uh, and so they're working with these really hairball problems, you know, modeling how cancer tumors grow and how how medicine could be delivered to kill the cancer cells. I think it's incredibly computationally difficult. It requires supercomputers, this kind of stuff. They're not, like, doing pure number theory or something. And (coughs) there's an important researcher at University of Michigan, Jacqueline Eccles, who was investigating this with respect to engineering where you see also some gender differentiation and different paths for going into it. And what she found was that uh, uh, men tend to, their path into engineering tends to be basically through geek culture, working with like cool things, (laughs) Um, (laughs) and gaming and things like that, Um, and, and girls, aren't really, that, that's just not their thing. But she did find that, that a way to interest girls in a possible career in engineering was to point out that engineering creates all kinds of technologies that are helpful to people, <laughs> not just fun to play with. And that, that actually end, ends up enticing girls to go into engineering. Now let's think about how engineering then could be transformed when you have different, different people with different interests in using engineering, right? Things can happen in terms of the content of what's, uh, of, of what's being done, and, and those things can be quite interesting and positive.
1: And Omar, what about the question Um, related to the selling of affirmative action, how to generate support for these kinds of policies? I think it is a hard one, yeah, yeah.
3: It's a good question. I think it is the trickiest one. I mean, it's what I've been trying to do, obviously not as effectively as I hope tonight, which is, you know, to emphasize the benefits for everyone, that, you know, it's good for us as a society, it's good for, you know, we can grow the pie, it doesn't have to be competitive, that we'll have a better society where there's more, Uh, by attending to needs that are previously unmet, by getting opportunities and economic growth from people who currently aren't working. So, for example, the employment gap in Britain today is uh, 11%, which means there's 500,000 missing black and minority ethnic workers from the labour market if the employment rate was the same. That's 500,000 people not working, 500,000 people not being able to provide enough food for their children, not investing in their children. Their children then, uh, you know, 59% of Bangladeshi live in poverty, 49% of black children live in poverty. Those are all social costs that maybe if we could, you know, uh, argue is not just a a justice-based reason, but it would make us a better and more efficient uh, society. And if you look forward to 2051, uh, when there'll be nearly, you know. 30% of the population, ethnic minorities in Britain. uh, If we don't tackle that employment rate, it'll be a million missing workers, Um, and so you know Britain won't be able to sustain its place in the uh, G7 GDP league tables if we don't tackle racial inequalities. Uh, A recent government report actually suggested that the weekly cost of racial inequality in Britain is um, uh, it was uh, 385 million a week, which is more than the Brexit bus. So, you know, if we are wondering where we're going to scrape back some of the loss uh, from leaving the European Union, maybe tackling racism is a good place to start. Um, I think also the, the sort of, the, I think you picked up on the point of, and I think we've even heard it in the audience a bit, when people hear about privilege, they tend to think that you're morally blaming them that they're a bad person. I mean, you even said decent, and I do think that's true, and how we communicate that more effectively, that we're not saying you're a morally bad person, but you are benefiting from a system of injustice. And it's not even that you necessarily created it. Um, But you are, you know, there are people who have forms of disadvantage that, that, that you don't have. And it's not saying that you are wrong because you didn't necessarily, you're not necessarily responsible. I think it's particularly hard for people who feel like they are the subject of other forms of social injustice to hear that they benefit from another type of social injustice. But that can be true. It's just a quite... Hard message to sell, so I would probably dissuade us from trying to morally blame people for their bad behaviors generally (laughs) in trying to sell policies of social justice. And I think that kind of though relates to my final point, which is responding to the question about the the way I kind of see that question is a wider one. Which is, you know, when I go into organizations, not so much. I mean, it has been Oxbridge, but you know, that they seem to focus a lot on how do we fix the person so that they can fit into this institution rather than how do we fix this institution so that all people can feel like they fit here. And I think there is a certain reading of affirmative action that it's like more about fixing the person because you're only putting, you know, a few individuals into the institution, which is otherwise staying the same. I think that's a little bit, I think, unfair on affirmative action. I think the the whole hypothesis is that by those people being in those institutions, the institutions will change. Now, obviously, if they're a minority of 5 or 10 percent, that's more of a struggle. But my, uh, you know, hopefully it would be more than that. It would be representative of all those disadvantaged groups. And then secondly, as I said, I don't think it's an either or. I don't think affirmative action fits all of that, fixes all of that. I think there needs to be widespread cultural change in most of our elite institutions so that working class voices are heard, that we change our policies and procedures so that voices aren't suppressed. And there's you know, affirmative action won't fix that by itself. We need many, many more diverse voices on Newsnight, you know? We need many, many more diverse uh, opinion writers, and, you know, I think affirmative action could do something to fix some of that, though. But it, it won't do it all by itself.
1: Do you want to say anything about this question of one thing to get through the door, but the other thing is, how is the building?
2: Yeah, I agree completely. I think this is super important. So... So I, I think we're basically on the same page here. <clears throat> Number one, tokenism doesn't really work. Um, <clears throat> all, all the research shows that, that somebody comes in as a token, they're very vulnerable. Sometimes it can even inflame stereotypes. What you really need is a critical mass yeah, a of people from underrepresented groups. Uh, because affirmative action fundamentally has to be about transformation of organizations and their cultures. Um, and without sufficient participation, you can't really get that yeah. that that transformation. So I, I consider affirmative action um, necessary, but far from sufficient to move to a better world. <laughs>
1: Fantastic. So there are going to be um, more opportunities for questions at the end, but I just wanted to put to the panel um, a final question. We've touched on this quite a bit already, but if we could get a bit deeper into the issue of the relationship between affirmative action and social justice. I'll start with you, Elizabeth.
2: So I see social justice as inextricable from making a more democratic society, where democracy... I'm understanding as people working together on terms of equality to solve the problems that they face together. Well, how is that going to happen without drawing in the full and equal participation of people from all different walks of life? And that's what affirmative action is trying to do, at least to to kick that process off.
3: Okay. Uh, that was, uh, uh, yes, I, I mean, I agree. I think the democratic arguments are really strong, and the more public the institutions are applied to, the, obviously the more straightforward uh, that argument. So I think you know, public institutions in particular uh, have have, have should, should be considering adopting it. Um, I also think uh, the equal opportunities case is worth stating. I mean, if you say you care about equal opportunities and there's a huge group that are currently not availing of those opportunities, I think the question then is, if you're not in favor of action, what else are you going to do? Or are you satisfied that forever, you know, the employment gap I referred to as 11%, it was, it was 12% in the 1980s. So at that rate of change, you know, it's going to take multiple, it's going to take everyone in this room to die, all of your children to die, before we'll see anything like racial justice. And I think you then need to consider, well, how else are we going to get there? if you don't? And if you don't see those as barriers to equal opportunity, I, I, I'm afraid I don't think you have a very realistic sense of social justice in terms of attending to the actual injustices that exist in our world. I think that that is actually one of the, I think, challenges in the philosophy literature, is that, you know, a lot of the literature, as both of you know, will be kind of ideal theory. What does, uh, what does a socially just society look like? And we need to attend more to the specific injustices that we've got now in, in the hope of getting more of an ideal society. But there are specific injustices we've got. It's not that these inequalities are randomly distributed and so we can think of random policy solutions. We've got particular deep-seated persistent historic injustices that need tackling. And that's a democratic as well as an equal opportunity argument.
1: And do you think the same sort of justifications for affirmative action policies apply um, regardless of the sort of group we're talking about? So are we talking about the same sort of arguments for affirmative action policies in relation to women as in relation to issues related to racial injustice, for instance?
2: Well, at the, at the most abstract level, if you're just talking about, say, equality of opportunity or democracy, at that abstract level, the arguments look pretty similar. But it's really important for effective affirmative action policies to be sensitive to the actual ways in which discrimination and exclusion differentially affects different groups. Yeah. So, for instance, we look, say, about people with disabilities like there's whole architectural issues involved that usually aren't at stake say with racial inclusion. So you do have to look at the details of what, what are the mechanisms that are excluding people and focus on addressing those mechanisms and those mechanisms are, are, are often quite, quite different for different groups.
3: Yeah, I think I, I think I'll just agree with that. I think you know there's a ethnic pay gap and a gender pay gap, and some of the sources that produce those pay gaps are similar, i.e. Uh, labour market segmentation, the kinds of jobs people do. But if you look at where the segmentation happens in terms of part time work, is more of an explanatory factor in the U- in the UK, um, whereas sectoral uh, distribution, i.e. what kinds of sectors of the economy ethnic minorities work in. Uh, so, so they're different. They both suffer from low pay, but the way the low pay uh, is engendered is different. So you'll need different policies to tackle the gender and race uh, pay gaps, even though they both are bad and should be combated.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, fantastic. So I'm going to open up the floor again to the audience. Any questions you like? We've got one at the front here, and I'll start with you. The uh, microphone will
9: come your way. taught it, worked it in universities, is um, I think some of the kind of challenges and things that we're talking about, having worked in the sector and promoted things are, as you were saying, a lot of the focus has been on who are you getting in as students and then not doing the things about how will they do. Again, one of the challenges is also the outcomes, you know, the business side. So I'm sitting in meetings and you have external bodies coming in and saying, we only want students with a 2-1, and I'm going, well, actually, that's indirect discrimination. And what is my institution that has a had lots of black students having this? But they just sort of say, well, we get too many people applying. So, So again, I think the kind of institutional things, I think in terms of and I was just hearing some colleagues here talk about it, what should curriculum be like? What is it that we're asking? And so, again, when I'm seeking to kind of try to change who is employed, there are curriculum issues, but there's also the pipeline. And, again, what we never do is say, well, who can actually afford to go? Mm. And it was a challenge that I've raised many, many times at many different places is, you know, that if you've got to have a degree and you have to come out of a top university, what we know is the majority of black students, ethnic minority students, do not. And they don't have the finances. And I think this is where we get to the nitty gritty. Mm. And, you know, from my experience also is that people at the top want to do the show. They want to make the minor changes, but they don't really want to look at the institutional practices that actually challenge, and sorry I'm gonna name it, which is white privilege. Because when it comes down to it, and and I did a session for the NHS and I said, I'll do this thing, white. no, 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 we don't want you to do that. So it was about how to do it by saying, you know, actually what I see is black staff aren't valued. And so you have to do it in a different way, which is about trying to change the kind of understanding. But I think, um, you know, I went I got my PhD from LSE but have taught at different places but when I see all the time about who they're choosing and they say hey we're getting this world class person I'm always saying why are they white men so I still have a very kind of strong view about again when we are looking at educational institutions and elite institutions who then get there there the whole kind of thing about who is in them who who is identified? So my story is yes, it's so important and, <laughs> and everything, but and 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 the real struggle w- on all of those things because, you know, um, it's it's so fundamentally important for the institutions but for the wider society.
1: Brilliant, thank you. And there was a question over here, this gentleman.
10: Hello. So. Uh, I don't understand the end goal of uh, of trying to pr- uh, provide a an inclusive environment for minorities. Uh, I can say this: you mentioned, uh, you know, black people thinking they're footballers or whatever, right? But my, my cousins in in Africa don't uh, think, oh, I have to become a football player or whatever. Because why would they, right? There's a, there's an African president, there's, an, there's Africans in the central bank, and I don't like this whole culture of uh, affirmative action because I mean, I grew up on a on an estate, right? And you have these uh, these kids that are really integrated in the UK, and it. They feel like, oh, they desperately need, frankly, like, the, you know, the white man's benevolent hand to just help them, right? Like, I don't like racism, right? So I create my own business, it's that simple. I'm not going to go out uh, to an employer and beg, because why would I, right? I don't understand this. I think this, this provides, a, it's it, it, it engenders a culture of like dependence, which doesn't benefit. I just don't see how it benefits the minorities. So I'm wondering what the end goal is here. Is it just to create a dependent class of, uh, of minorities, which is, which is just really another, a more subtle, less aggressive version of slavery, frankly, and colonization? I don't understand who, who this benefits really. I'm just, I'm just trying to understand the end goal of it, and I don't see how it's... I, I think it's just malicious to, uh, to minorities. Okay. I, I just don't see who it's helping.
1: Thank you. Thanks so much. And there was a question here, and then we'll go back to the panel, come back to the audience. Thanks. This gentleman... Can you raise your hand? There you go. There. Thank
11: you. I, 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 I was perhaps listening, um, thinking as, as someone who... Um, in my professional career, has been an employer um, and therefore been recruiting. And I must say, I don't recognize the picture that you've painted of the institutional elite um, seeking to, to maintain the status quo. And in many ways, I would have said that, you know, there is a lot of buy-in to the end goal that that you've been painting of, you know, a more inclusive society, more inclusive institutions. The the difficulty and the reason that I suspect affirmative action is controversial, is that people can't get over the tension between um, seeking um, to uh, apply um, one rule for for one group and another rule for another group, based on um, that alone. And it, it's the tension between that and and applying meritocracy, which I think is the difficulty. Now, that, you know, perhaps comes to some of the other points which we've heard about in terms of the way in which you look at um, academic success, the way in which you assess um, other qualifications as well. But I, I don't from my own experience, feel that there is resistance to the, the end goal, it's, it's much more the methodology as to how you get there and whether um, affirmative action is yeah. you know, meritorious in its own right.
1: Okay, thank you, three fantastic
2: questions, any takers? Uh, so I'll just address the last one because I think that's really interesting. There is this picture. I think it's probably the dominant public interest uh, image of affirmative action that's about double standards, lower standards for people of color, women perhaps, or whatever group is in question. And I just think that that's not the right way to be thinking about these things. Um, An organization, and I also agree with you that there are many, many organizations that are on board the general idea, but they really have no idea, no effective idea how to implement it, and so they think, oh, the way to do this is to have double standards. And I, I think that's just the wrong way to be thinking about how this works. So number one, there has to be a focus on implicit bias. And the fact that it's actually extraordinarily difficult, even when people are trying to hire meritocratically, it's very difficult to overlook or or to block the operation of stereotypes that are running behind one's back because you're not fully aware of it. And consequently, a lot of affirmative action, and this has been very extensively studied in the United States, (coughs) has to do with structuring the deliberative context uh, uh, in in order to uh, enable a more uh, uh, meritocratic decision to be made. So for instance, I'm chair of my department, philosophy department at University of Michigan, so we all get training on this, and, and everybody, we can't proceed with a faculty search without everyone on the search committee and the chair undergoing training on how to do this. And there are certain things that that you learn. For instance, holistic um, evaluation often, often leads to background stereotypes manifesting. Whereas if you break down, okay, what are the actual things we're looking for? and then you explicitly uh, uh, evaluate each candidate on each, sep- each criterion separately, you actually get fairer results. Um, and in fact, there's, t- there's just tons and tons of research that's been done on this and how to actually make things more meritocratic. But in addition to this, particularly in creative fields, fields where you're looking for new ideas, um, <clears throat> there's a lot of research that, that suggests that increasing the internal diversity of an organization is, is going to lead to more creativity. And that, that involves, say, with academic hiring, thinking outside the box. <laughs> that is, it's not necessarily the people who've been plowing the same furrows. The so people are, like, approaching the field in, 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 in really different ways. And, and what questions are they asking? And consistently, i found in philosophy the increasing diversification of philosophy has led to a lot, a different discourse. People are asking different questions, using different methods, testing out different things. It's, it's actually been incredibly enlivening, and I see this both at the faculty level and at, 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 at the student level. So that, that requires us also to even rethink what constitutes merit, because people can get very comfortable doing things the way they've always been doing things. It's not necessarily the best way to do things. You mentioned implicit bias there. Could you just tell us a
1: bit more about what that is?
2: Yes. So implicit biases are things like stereotypes and other kinds of uh, cognitive habits that tend to lead to discriminatory outcomes. For no no justification. The difficulty here is that we're living in societies that are highly unequal, saturated with all kinds of group stereotypes. It's impossible for people to go through life in society and be remotely aware and not have imbued some of these things. Even if they consciously reject the stereotypes, the stereotypes are still lodged in their brains that affect their behavior. And it, even without one being aware of it because 90% of the time, perhaps 95% of the time, we're all running on autopilot anyways. <laughs> Only a tiny amount of our mental activity is actually raised to consciousness. So you got that implicit bias is when these things are happening, discrimination's happening and you're not even aware of it because most of our mental activity we're not aware of. Hence, when that's discovered, we need to create uh, Uh, new uh, uh, methods of decision-making so as to counteract or block the operation of these biases. Okay, thank you. And (laughs) this question, you
1: know, is this just creating a culture of dependency? You know, what's the end goal anyway?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel like I was uh, obviously I haven't explained it as well as I was I was I was trying. I mean, the 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 end goal is to tackle uh, those unjust disadvantages that flow from group based belonging, and I wasn't implying that in fact that uh, black people have stereotypes about footballers. I was implying what white people think that black people can do, and that what are the reasons that we need more black people in positions of power and influence and decision-making is to tackle those stereotypes about what they can do and i've highlighted lots of sort of statistics about why we're currently very far away from that society and the question then is you know how are we going to get there and uh, as as we've sort of explained today that affirmative action has relative success globally not only in bringing individuals to positions uh, of of decision making, but also of benefiting that wider group by ensuring that more people have access to social networks, to equal opportunities. I mean, I think this is one of the things that we don't talk about enough in such a profoundly sort of unequal society. It's often the case that you don't know anyone in your family or in your close social networks who was successful at doing a particular kind of profession. So having someone from those backgrounds uh, can actually benefit the the wider group. So I mean, my take on, on, on it is that, we're, as with Elizabeth, I don't think it's about lowering standards at all. I think the existing population uh, who benefit from things have no higher standards than the, the ones who are currently excluded. I think those exclusions are based on injustice and disadvantage. And so tackling uh, the injustice... I mean, I think the fact that current racial injustices are derived from racism and inequality is not a reason to think that all... Uh, policies that try to tackle it will necessarily replicate them in the future uh, the The other thing I wanted to say about um, um the point around, I mean, we, we seem to think, we seem to have a hard time thinking like, what is this claim? I mean, but until a woman pointed out that there was no woman on a 5 pound or 10 pound or 20 mile note, apparently all the men in the room didn't even recognize it. There have been no women's statues in Trafalgar Square, I mean on um, Parliament Square, and we haven't recognized it for hundreds of years. If it was so kind of blindingly obvious that these inequalities are right in front of our face, and yet we didn't see them until a sort of campaign started by women to recognize these things. So I think if we can't even see something something, something that plain in front of our face, the statues in front of the world's greatest democracy, apparently, and the bills that are in our pocket every day and we don't notice that there's no women in any of those spaces when we notice that half of the people in our society are women, our mothers and our daughters, I think it's, you know, it shows how how deep the epistemic problems are for men to recognize gender uh, inequality and how deep the epistemic problems, I think, are for a lot of uh, white people to recognize racial injustice, even when it's standing, staring at them right in the face. I mean, you know, the population of the UK is not only, you know, 15% minority ethnic, but it's 40% minority ethnic in the 50-year-old population of London. And I don't think you'll go to many organizations where you'll see four in ten of the senior management or chief executives being black and minority ethnic. It's true that there's a more diverse younger population, but 20% of the population of people in their 30s are BME in Britain. And, you know, it's not just an issue for 18 to 24-year-olds. And the, when I say that these things to most firms, it's news to them. They didn't realize that the problem is that extensive. When we talk about universities as well, they recognize that their new hires are not diverse enough, but they don't realize how profound the Lack of representation is in, of amongst people in their forties and fifties, which is actually much more diverse uh, than most people in Britain realize. And again, that's the sort of fact that should be just staring in our face. If I, I did want to say one final thing. I also think, I, I really like Elizabeth's point around you know, the the sort of herd behavior, is what I would call it, if you don't have differential views. And this was an argument that I think a lot of banks picked up after the financial crisis, which is it's great to have lots of people who think the same if the herd's going in the right direction, but if there's a cliff up ahead and nobody's sort of sticking out their hand and saying, wait a minute, is this really the right way to go, Um, then you, you face serious problems. And I think the reality is our social problems today are so vast and so complex That the idea that one point of view or even, you know, people with a similar point of view could possibly solve them organizationally or socially, uh, you know, is just not true. And lots of economists have modeled this, that you kind of, when you get to decision-making problems, you, you reach a point where if everyone thinks the same, you hit a peak. And you can't get beyond that peak until you bring in someone who has a different perspective to think, to think differently about new problems. And that is one of the things that not just as organizations but as society we're going to have to confront as it becomes more complex, more diverse, uh, and, and, and you know, arguably our challenges of social inequality are, are more vexing.
1: Well, we've got five minutes left. I'd love to take a few more questions, and we'll see if the panel has a chance to answer them. So we've got one question at the end here and one at the back there and one over here, so we'll start there. There, there. <clears throat> If Thank you could you. keep them short, so that we can hopefully okay, sure. bring everyone in. Thank, Thank you, Ilida. You. Uh, you mentioned about the larger structural issue of political economy in the post-war era, that the affirmative action was welcome because we need economic growth and we need a diverse group of people to participate. But in today's context, it's rising inequality, so people are concerned about competing for their piece of the pie. But uh, from logical reasoning, that if affirmative action could increase the Um, quality of, of opportunity and then it could also increase the quality of outcome, I mean income and wealth, but
6: how could we really make affirmative action a solution of inequality? Because people if people are unaware of the larger picture, you mentioned about organization could incorporate knowledge, but are there any other ways that we could really make a solution to that inequality
1: issues? Thank you. Thank you very much and right at the back we've got a question. Thank
9: you.
5: Hi there guys, thank you so much for for the talk. Um I think it might be something we've we've tackled already, I just haven't got a, a good grasp of it. Um but from what I've learned anecdotally from discussions with others about affirmative action, um a big stickler to the idea is that the idea we um the idea that we already live in meritocratic societies. But it's something that Omar brought up already that um one in what was it, one in five uh men over 50 are BAME, and that's not represented in our Fortune 500 companies, which shows that clearly there is an issue with the idea of meritocracy in in our country or in our society. I understand it's one that sticks with us because we've got the Protestant work ethic thing going for us and we have done for the last couple of hundred years, so it is one that sticks with us. My question is, how how are we able to tackle that problem, the idea or the notion that we live in a meritocratic society so that the idea of affirmative action is more palatable to people it's not necessarily palatable to now? Thank you. Fantastic.
8: Um, I guess my question is um, more about when affirmative action can go wrong so we talk a lot about how it can benefit groups and that's its aim but what happens when it kind of just goes i guess a bit tits up um example might be saying like the media industry and film industry there's an extreme underrepresentation of lgbt people and queer identities and what's happened is is say like with the increase of say like a so you might call it like a tokenized lgbt representation say like um of a queer person that can have like adverse effects not only on like within the LGBT community but on opinions of others of the LGBT community and can have like adverse effects like um on asylum seekers, homosexual asylum seekers who are then seen as like not fitting that stereotype for being gay. So I guess my question is like when can affirmative action go wrong and why does it go wrong?
1: Fantastic, thank you. So Back to our panel for some final thoughts and hopefully a response to these fantastic questions. Yeah, I
3: think that that is a, I think there is, so I think the sort of objection uh, to affirmative action that it sort of will make people think they've got. Jobs for the wrong reasons is also similar. And, you know, there is some data on this that that's not true. Like, most people, when they're in these environments, realize that a lot of the advantaged people are sort of less hot than they think they are. And that actually, I'm pretty good. And now, now that I'm seeing that all these people have kind of wrongly benefited. So there's a study by two uh, former presidents of Harvard and Princeton that found that African Americans who benefit. But I think that sort of speaks to the sort of self regarding sense of respect that I have and uh, confidence in my own abilities, but I think there is a challenge which also speaks to the challenge of how we sell it of other regarding respect. So how do other people perceive you know, my position or my place? And I think there can be a challenge for affirmative action if it's not sold well to sort of explain that this this, you know, the people who have got it not because they aren't good enough, and that's one of the reasons why I think those arguments really need to be combated at the beginning, and it speaks to, I think that that is one of the most profound problems, is we have a belief that that, uh, you've articulated that we already live in a meritocratic society, so we're diverging from justice, you know, so however unjust, whatever... Uh, racial inequality or sexism is in society, there's at least somehow uh, a bit of decision-making that's insulated from all that and that is just and that is meritocratic. And I think we have to tackle that by highlighting the wider social injustices and getting people to understand that they persist. I think the problem with that, and I say this as someone who is the director of a think tank that has existed for 50 years this year, publishing lots of reports on statistics, as it's quite clear to me that stats by themselves don't convince people. So it's about how you nest that stat within a narrative that explains that an inequality isn't just some sort of random occurrence, but is you know, produced by unfair, unjust actions and structures. But I think we still have some way to go to translate that kind of language to a wider public for them to understand it. I think with Windrush, there was a cut through because the unfairness was was so clear. And so maybe we need to learn more of where the public have understood that a structural injustice affects individuals and what it means to say something's a structural injustice. Because I think in philosophy and sociology and in seminar rooms like this, we talk a lot about these issues, but the wider public just uh, doesn't doesn't really understand what it is that we're talking about. And I think that we can complain about that, but that is a spur for us to try to explain it better as well. I don't think we should just be like, the public need to be educated better. We need to do a better job of communicating.
1: Thank you. We're almost out of time. But over to Elizabeth for final few words.
2: So I wanted to address the question about the larger... Uh, Mm-hmm. Political economy in the context in which affirmative action is placed, look affirmative action can 't solve all problems of inequality it 's just one piece of a much much bigger puzzle and I also just wanted to address the question about arguments. most people aren 't convinced by arguments, but they are <laughs> convinced by experience yeah. and uh, and so one of the things that happens when when people participate in institutions that are more diverse. They start appreciating diversity. And we have very strong empirical evidence in the United States. Students who attend uh, more richly integrated uh, schools lead more integrated lives. They choose to because they have a positive experience. Well,
1: All that's left now is to thank our wonderful panelists and thank you for coming. I don't know if we've sold the idea of affirmative action to you, but I think we have definitely sold the forum's mission of doing philosophy together in public. So thank you all very much.